Hello, it's Saturday, March 30th, 2019, and you're listening to episode 4 of Dice Dads. Dice Dads is the tabletop gaming podcast that focuses on the parent gamer and the challenges we all face juggling the hobby we love and the responsibilities of work and family. My name is Josh Fry, and I will be your host today, and I'd like to welcome you to the show. So today I'm here in the studio all by my lonesome, and I thought we'd maybe try something a little bit different. It's the start of something I like to call the Foundation Series. I feel like a sizable number of our listeners are newer to the hobby of gaming, or are perhaps at the stage where they are open to finding out more about the hobby, but maybe don't know how to take that first step into getting more information and finding out what all's out there and what they can get involved in. The purpose of this series is to present some of the foundational basics then, to help us all build a common vernacular and also to demystify some of the things for newer gamers that seem like common knowledge to those of us who've been in and around it a little bit longer. So to get things rolling, one of the things I thought we would have a discussion about today is all the different types of games and game categories that exist within the larger tabletop hobby. People from the outside looking in may not realize it, but there's actually a number of different distinct categories that you often see when you look at all the different kinds of games that you can find out there. Uh, These games range all over the gamut from very long-lasting, thinky games that require a lot of abstract, strategic thought, all the way down to the other end of the spectrum of very light, easy, fun games that you can play with the youngest players. And just like anything else, as more and more options have become available, our tendency as humans is to categorize and organize the options we have available to us to help us understand what fits where and what might be similar to the other things that we already know and like. So where do we start? Well, I think first you'd want to look at the difference between what we would consider the modern tabletop hobby gaming industry and the products that you find there, and what you would consider to be the uh, mass-market, cheaply produced board games that most people are familiar with and used to seeing in big box stores. Now, while both of those are certainly considered to be games, uh, there's a little bit of an important distinction there, and uh, and I guess I would liken that to the difference between buying, say, a mass-market coffee Uh, that comes in a large metal tin and is very cheap by the ounce, but is used in a lot of larger practical applications where the quality of the coffee isn't necessarily important as the, the presence and abundance and cost of the coffee, right? And then I would put the hobby gaming options on the other end of that scale and compare that to what you would consider to be like the more artisanal coffees that you... Uh, maybe pay a little bit more for that are flavored in a particular way or sourced from a particular location. The difference there being that more care is put into the quality and the experience of the product uh, so that at the end of the day, the assumption is there is a group of potential customers that, uh, that are willing to pay a little bit more for a better experience, a higher quality experience, and something that's maybe, uh, at the end of the day, more satisfying than that more straightforward, generic alternative. And so, um, you know, as you dip your toes into the tabletop hobby, you'll certainly see that there's a distinction there between um, games like Monopoly and Shoots and Ladders, the, the type of board games that we all remember from our, you know, from our childhood days, the other gaming products that have become available in the last 25 years on the market uh, and really have 
revolutionized table games in a way that uh, I don't think anyone would have thought possible uh, two decades ago. Uh, so really, what am I talking about here? Well, you know, stop and consider for a minute that um, the type of games that you typically find in, let's say, a Walmart or a Target are mass market games in the sense that they're designed to have a very low price point, they're designed to have a lot of shelf appeal, and they're really targeted not at the players themselves, which in most cases are younger children, children under the ages of, of, of uh, 16, but they're actually targeted at the buyers of those products, which are recognized to be uh, mothers, grandparents, uh, people looking to purchase a birthday present for a child. Those are those are really the target audiences, the target market that those products are designed uh, to, to fulfill a need for. So the level of care and quality and depth of play that goes into those games isn't necessarily as important as its flash and appeal. Uh, and that's why um, you see a lot of the uh, a lot of the offers that you'll you'll find in uh, big box stores like that aren't necessarily you don't necessarily see a lot of different options. What you do see is uh, pop, current popular pop culture uh, properties placed on top of games that maybe you're already familiar with. For example, when Despicable Me comes out and all the kids are really excited about Minions and all the uh, uh, intellectual property that goes along with that and the toys for Des Despicable Me are selling. Well, it's not uncommon for games of that type then to acquire those intellectual properties and co-opt them onto games that you're already familiar with, like a, a Monopoly or a Shoots and Ladders, that kind of thing. With the idea being that the again the potential purchaser is going to be somewhat familiar with those classic games but then also recognize that that's a that's a brand that's an ip that uh, is popular with that uh, that child that they're buying the, uh, the 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 game for and so that sweetens the potential for being able to sell that as a as a, as a product right so uh, so that's just kind of a little bit of a look behind the curtain on kind of why those games exist and why they are what they are. And, and certainly there's nothing wrong with that. I'm one of those people that have bought several of those games to play with my younger kids to get them rooted in a foundation of, of games and and certainly try simpler games so that they can build those foundational skills so that we can move on to other things. But now at the other end of the market is the modern tabletop hobby industry, which offers all manner of different kinds of games suited to all different kinds of play styles, levels of interest, levels of strategy. And really, that hobby market is catering to the experience. They're, they're catering to building the best experience possible for a particular kind of gaming preference. And obviously, there's a lot of people out there that enjoy games, so there's a lot of different preferences, right? So when you look across the landscape of the entire market, you see lots and lots of games. Now, the last time I saw a metric on the number of new hobby games that are coming out every year, it was to the tune of about 2,000 new titles every year internationally. And that seems like a huge number, and it is. But you have to stop and consider that's taking into account all the different kinds of games that come out. And there's just a huge amount of different options available out there. So uh, certainly it's it's a lot to take in if you're trying to figure out kind of where you fit in on the, the, the larger scope of things. So uh, again, that's kind of what we're trying to talk about today and the 
kind of the basics that I'm trying to cover here is to try to help you be able to sift and sort a little bit so that you understand not only what's out there, but maybe what you, what fits in your wheelhouse and what you're going to like and what you maybe want to pass over because it doesn't fit within your particular game tastes. So to start, one of the most common categorizations you'll run into in the hobby gaming market is the distinction between what are called Euro games and what's called Ameritrash. And that sounds a little rude, but I'll explain the difference. Uh, so what what uh, typically is considered to be a Euro game uh, is a style of game that got popular uh, a couple of decades ago in and around Germany uh, and that part of the world. And Germany is one of those places where, partly because, um, well, there's a lot of factors there, partly because of their weather, partly because they enjoy activities that involve bringing lots of people together. The hobby of board gaming really took off in that country in a, in a uh, significant way. And uh, what we saw develop out of, uh, out of that effort was what's considered to be the Euro game, which tends to be a game that offers very little uh, in the way of luck built into the game. So you don't find a lot of dice rolling, for example, or uh, roll and move, draws of the card to determine something. The games are really more designed around building an engine of some kind and using strategy and, uh, and selection of different choices that are put in front of you to try to be more effective or efficient than the rest of the players in the game. Now, to that end, uh, what you often find in most Euro games is they tend to downplay things like uh, direct aggression and uh, combat, uh, things of that nature, where you're actually uh, competing and, and at direct odds with the other players. Instead, normally what you find in a Euro game is the kind of approach where, for instance, you all start with the same kinds of resources, and then the challenge then is within a certain amount of time or within a, a certain uh, number of cycles, you're, the expectation is to be uh, the player who can come out on, type, uh, on top in terms of you know developing an engine that makes them the most money or points or what have you. So really, you're, you are competing against the other players, but in a non-direct way. So you're, you're almost competing against your own ability to play your best version of, your, of, of the game. So, so uh, Euro games have sprung up, you know, again, um, they're very popular in Europe. And then as they started to spread across the world, they really took root in America and Canada, uh, where the hobby was also building up from the, the, the simple basic roots that, again, we, we all experienced um, in, our, in the early days from offerings that were available at big box stores like Monopoly and Shoots and Ladders and, and games of that nature. In that time, since those games had come out, the American approach to games was to create games that offered more in terms of depth of play against other players, um, deeper thematic experiences where uh, you're put in a more of an interactive story and the expectation is either 
uh, with all the players working as a team or with all the players working against each other, uh, you know, you were to play through the story towards whatever end existed. And so to that end, those games um, <laughs> were kind of dubbed uh, somewhat rudely as Ameritrash. And that's a title that, you know, in its face value seems awfully negative. And certainly that came from Eurogamers looking at uh, what was what was available uh, on the other side of the the world and, and recognizing those games as being very different than the ones that they were comfortable playing games that offered less in terms of depth of strategy and that were more dice rolling experiences and huge opportunities to succeed or fail based on a luck based event, like, you know, the roll of a die or the right set of random opportunities being flipped from cards and that, and things of that nature. So you can kind of see how that experience while being very, very different from what they were comfortable with in terms of uh, what was considered a Euro, uh, would have to be di- you know distinguished as something different. And so Ameritrash was that 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 name that was kind of that was kind of added to the vernacular for that for for those kind of games. And and, and while it kind of has a negative connotation, it's funny because it's one of those it's one of those words that has stuck around, and people that enjoy those types of games have rather embraced it for what it is because in that. In that sense, those games are representations of a good Saturday afternoon matinee guns and fighting movie that you sit down and you enjoy your popcorn and you enjoy it for what it is. And the story isn't too deep and you didn't come away expecting to uh, to have this, uh, you know, this amazing um, life changing experience. But but what you wanted from that movie, you know, was just to be able to be entertained and, and to, to be able to to be part of a story that then you could talk with your friends about after the fact and, and look back on and, and have, have enjoyed the process of playing through it. And, and, and to that end, I think that's the appeal of Ameritrash games and, and, uh, and those really theme heavy, often, you know, combat and or luck heavy games that, that draw players who are attracted to that in a big way, because uh, it's a, it's a great way to play through something that's more of an interactive experience with your friends and, and, and you can enjoy that for what it is. And, you know, the, the other great thing about uh, uh, those kinds of games is because there's so many of them coming out, it's, 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 it's always easy to get expansions to games like that, that you like to get new versions of different stories that play similarly and, and, you know, so those, those games really, um, are appealing if you're, if you're into that kind of experience out of your, out of your gaming. So what does all this really mean and how is it distinct? Well, when we're looking at different games, you have to look at a number of different elements that play into what a game is at its structural level. Chief amongst those things are theme and mechanics. And oftentimes you'll see people in the in the hobby kind of rank games based on their thematicness, on their on their uh, ability to present a theme in, in a good way, and on their mechanics. What are the core structural elements to the game and you know do they work well to accomplish what it is they're trying to get the 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 player to interact with and so what you'll find is you know there's again people out there for every different kind of thing 
so, you know, you'll find some people who think that at the end of the day, as long as a game is all about mechanics and it has a solid mechanical core, that makes it a great game. And that's what they care about. On the other end of the scale, you have, you, you'll have players that love theme and theme is the only thing that keeps me rooted and based in, in a game and keeps me uh, interested in what's going on long enough to see it through to its finish. And all of the rest of us kind of fit somewhere in that middle between theme and mechanics, mechanics and theme. But taken together, you can kind of define what a game is by explaining what those mechanics are that are at the root of the game and explaining how well that fits into the thematic approach that the game tried to take. So, as an example, uh, I might take a game like Zombicide by Simon uh, that came out a number of years ago, and it's had a number of expansions. Uh, it's a game where all the players take on the role of a survivor after the zombie apocalypse. And the game itself plays out over a, a set of board tiles uh, that are put together in, in different layouts to represent a ruined city in which the survivors are trying to uh, find uh, needed resources or escape the zombie horde that's coming to get them. The game itself plays out using scenarios that set up the way the board is laid out, where the players start, where the zombies start, and the kind of the definition and win conditions that are set up as, as necessary to be able to play that game. Now that game is obviously very thematic. It's built around a story and it gives you a story background and gives you the criteria that it expects the characters in the story to move forward to uh, what they perceive to be their their victory or their goal. Now, the mechanics to that game are pretty simple. They basically give you a set of structured rules so that players know how to move their survivors around the, the city. Players understand how the zombies themselves will move from one tile to the next. Uh, there's a basic AI that programs the direction that they move to based on sounds that are being made by the players and by other elements in the city. And so the players then have to move around and uncover different things in the city, finding weapons and resources that they can use to be able to accomplish whatever their victory condition is, either getting to a particular part of the city or finding a particular number of resources that they need, uh, or just... Uh, killing zombies and being able to level themselves up to a particular point where they can be hardier characters and more equipped to survive the zombie apocalypse. So that's an example of a thematic style board game that doesn't have a lot of structural mechanical elements to it, but gives you enough of a structure to be able to be part of a story that you and your friends can then play through and enjoy the experience Whoever wins and loses is not really nearly as important in those types of games as just the experience itself and being able to sit around a table and enjoy yourselves. On the other end of that scale, you might find a game like Agricola, which is a classic game by Uwe Rosenberg, uh, and is a good example of what you would consider to be a modern, classic Euro game. Now, Agricola is a very different kind of game. In Agricola, you're a farmer in a wooden shack with a spouse and not much else to start at the, at the beginning of your game. What you're trying to do is build up your farm more aggressively and efficiently than the other players so that you can survive the hardy winters of the world that you live in. Now, on each player's turn, they're limited to just a couple of actions, one action each for the farmer and their spouse. Now, those actions can be selected from a fair number of possibilities of things you'll find on a farm. Collecting different resources, uh, wood, clay, stone, 
building fences and making improvements to the farm and, um, and, and being able to add to the farm and its ability to create resources, all with the intention of, of having it generate enough resources to be able to feed the family through the winter. This sort of game is a good representation of a Euro because the theme itself, building that farm, is relatively light and abstracted in the sense that you're basically concerned with building the engine to develop resources, develop resource engines, and use those to create different kinds of resources that you need. And the fact that it's a farm and it's not a space station or a, a roadside market or a grocery store or any one of a, a number of other possible things that might use that kind of a development engine really doesn't matter. So in the case of a lot of euros, like we see with Agricola, the theme itself is relatively thin. It's really just kind of stuck on there to give you enough of a reason to frame the game out that you can take what's there and understand, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do from point A to the point B that I'm trying to get to at the end of the game. What you're really most concerned with with games such as such as these is what are the limitations that I have in terms of how the mechanics work and how do I use the the limited options I have available to me from one turn to the next to make the best decisions I can make and utilize those choices uh, in the best way possible so that I can strategically build up that engine and and do the best that I can with the, the, the time and the, and the uh, number of, of selections that I have. So again, you, you see a, a focus here with trying to figure out how to play the game as efficiently and effectively as you can, and less about having a, a fun experience where maybe you don't even make it through the game. These types of games tend to be more with a tend to have more of a focus of winning versus not winning the game. So that's something to keep in mind is you know whether those kinds of games which tend to be maybe not necessarily as aggressive in the sense that I can't attack other farms in Agricola and uh, you know kill all the cows on the farm next to me so that he can't uh, bring them to market before the winter but but they're they're more competitive in the sense that they're very much is a a clear winner and pressure usually is on to try to make the most of whatever scoring uh, opportunities exist because oftentimes those games if they're designed really well the difference between winning and losing can just be a handful of points and so uh, you're really trying to make every decision count. So that's kind of a look at uh, the differences between what you would consider a, a Euro game and a more thematic game. So another thing we might look at is uh, game length. How does game length factor into the way games play, and does it matter? One of the things you'll find um, that, that I appreciate has become a common way of identifying games, if you look, most modernly printed games will now present to you Three important pieces of information represented as icons somewhere on the packaging. And those three things are recommended player age, uh, a player count that the game will support, and a rough suggestion of the amount of time the game is liable to take when you play it. Now, why are these three things important? Well, recommended age obviously uh, speaks to the uh, level of complexity of the game. Is it a game that I can play with exceptionally young players? Or for that matter, older players that maybe uh, would have a hard time grasping more complex uh, strategies and 
robust rule sets that they would need to, to keep in mind as they as they play. The number of players that the game supports is obviously important because if you're sitting down to a game, you want to know, is this going to support the number of people that I have that want to sit down and play right now? Is this a game that can uh, that can uh, play well with a larger group of, of people, a smaller group of people? Oftentimes, a two-player game plays very differently than a game that's structured around more than two players. And so, depending on you know what you're trying to accomplish, whether you're trying to play a solo game by yourself, you're trying to play a game with one other person as a, as a two-player game, or you're playing something that's more of a experiential game with with three or more players. Those kind, those games that fit those different niches are going to obviously play very differently, and so that uh, that player count is an important thing to consider when looking at games. And finally, recommended playtime. This gives you a sense of how long that game experience is going to last. And obviously, this is going to vary from one play to the next because you're going to have obviously a longer playtime if you have players who aren't familiar with the rules or who don't know what they're doing it's liable to stretch out the game the first uh, attempt or so so that's something to consider when you're looking at board games look for those little three icons and modern graphic designers have kind of taken that to heart particularly as as games have started to be produced in multiple languages they've taken an iconographic approach to those and put them somewhere on the box where they look similar to the representations that you'll see on other games and so it becomes pretty easily eye-catchable as you're looking at games to to recognize those three icons for what they are because uh, again that allows you to kind of weigh that game and decide whether that's something uh, that that fits a particular need that you might have for for uh, the purchase of a game So why would I want to play a longer game versus a shorter game, you might ask? Well, obviously a longer game experience is going to give you more time to roll out a story, for example, in the case of a theme-heavy game, or to be able to build nuances into a more complex engine-building game, in the case of something like a Euro. Uh, it's, and it's going to give you more opportunities to build that to a level of completion that, uh, that, you, that you might find uh, more satisfying in the end. So, you know, in general, a longer game isn't necessarily a negative thing, but one thing you do need to consider is that it is a little harder to get longer games to the table, and it can be challenging to be able to carve out enough time for a two, three, four-hour game, for example, unless it's the kind of situation where you set it up beforehand that, hey, this is the event that we're going to pursue today, and, you know, to that end, we're going to take this afternoon and play this longer game, see it through to its completion. And, and those can be a lot of fun if that's, if that's the kind of game style that you're into. Now, conversely, a shorter game has a lot of uses. Obviously, it's easier to get one, to, one of those to the table if you don't have a lot of time. Uh, or if you're playing with uh, people that may have to, to slip out and, and go on their way shortly, that's a good opportunity to play a shorter uh, you know, sub 30 minute game. There's even games as short as five and 10 minutes long. Uh, and those games sometimes are colloquially called fillers, uh, which is not to say that they're not fun games in their own right. And they, they can't be played and enjoyed just as much as other games. But uh, the reason they're given that moniker sometimes is because they're really good for filling in those little holes in your game night while you're, say, waiting for the last player to get there. Maybe you've 
you know, invited three people over and you're going to play four player games all night and, and, uh, two people have shown up. And so there's three of you sitting there waiting for the fourth. Well, you might pull out a smaller filler game and play that until that last person shows up. Filler games are also a great uh, way to engage people. If you've, uh, if you go to say, a a gaming meetup and you've got uh, a lot of people sitting there playing different games. If somebody shows up while there are games going on at the moment and they're kind of waiting for one of those to finish so they can fold themselves into a game group and play, uh, play whatever the next game is, those filler games, those, those smaller games are a great way to engage that person maybe with one or two other people who are doing the same uh, and keep them busy for the 15, 20 minutes that it might take to finish up what's going on on one of the other tables and then uh, be able to to move on to something with a little more meat to it. So uh, so shorter games obviously have their place, as do longer games. And again, there's a, a, a whole litany of uh, different sizes and, and durations of games that you can find out there. So it just really comes down to what you're looking for. What fits the immediate need you have for your, you know, for your game night, for your game session, uh, and you know what feels uh, right in terms of your play style and, and what you enjoy. Coming back to the idea of player count as a game selector, we talked a little bit about different games having different number of players constructed into them and how that really defines the kind of game they are. Uh, you can find lots of different games out there, ranging from solo games, which are games that can be played by just one person, or it could be a two-player game, which focuses more on a one-versus-one approach. Uh, there aren't a lot of games that you'll find like this that are specifically designed to be a head-to-head -head kind of experience, but there are some that do fall into that category, and usually they're designed to be that way rather than a game that's designed around three or more players which can have a deeper amount of interactivity between players when you've got more than two people. For example, you might have a game where with three or more players, you're able to build alliances, one player uh, to another, being able to make trade agreements that might be a, you know, a negative outcome to one particular player, but the two players involved in that agreement then are able to team up against a larger aggressor and work together to bring them back down to their level. Those are the kinds of differences you might find in a game that has more more of a, a larger player count, uh, whereas a more head-to-head -head experience, you're kind of on your own against the other player in the game. So, that said, you can find games that will uh, accommodate a varying range of number of players from being able to play by yourself to being able to play with a, a whole room of people. Uh, so there's there's something out there to fit whatever your need is, whatever the case may be. So we've kind of talked about uh, some different things today. We've talked about different kinds of games, uh, the difference between mechanics, between theme, how longer games fit into the picture, shorter games fit into the picture, uh, how to recognize on a game kind of what its main offerings are and how to be able to understand whether that game is an appropriate fit for you. And so hopefully that's a helpful peek uh, behind the curtain to help you kind of understand how games are structured and how to be able to select one that fits what, what your particular needs are. Now, there's lots of information out there online if you want to go dig into this deeper. And certainly there's no better place to find information in the board gaming hobby than BoardGameGeek.com. Now, BoardGameGeek.com is the holy grail website for board game hobby enthusiasts. It's essentially a, a website that packs a, a complete encyclopedia of, of recognized games out there, 
uh, along with uh, the ability to review them, read reviews, find out more about them, see pictures of them, all kinds of things. There's just a, a wealth of information about games and how they play and, and what people think about them. Uh, there's also some forums out there that are available and uh, places where you can review different games that you've played. You can build your top 10 list and put it out there for other people to look at. There's just a, a wealth of resources on that website. So if you haven't had a chance to get out there and take a look at uh, Board Game Geek, I would highly recommend that you do so. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun and it can be a really eye-opening experience to at uh, different games that uh, people are playing and, and finding out kind of what's hot and what's at the forefront of everybody's interest at the moment. And it can certainly give you some direction if you're looking at uh, maybe picking some new games out for yourself and, uh, and adding something new and interesting to your collection. All right, so with that, I think we're going to wrap up this episode of Dice Dads. I want to thank you for listening to this new podcast. And I hope that you'll continue to come back and check us out for more as we continue to add episodes. I know the last few have uh, had a fair amount of time in between them, and we've kind of uh, struggled with being able to figure out our release times and our ability to record. Just life tends to get in the way, and particularly when you've uh, got several people involved that all have kids and other things going on, it, uh, it can be a challenge to, to find the time to get them get in front of the microphone and record things. So we appreciate you coming back and, and listening to this episode, and uh, we hope you'll stick with us and, and check us out for more information. Uh, you can also connect with us by emailing us at dicedads at salamandergames.com. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Dicedads, and you can find us on the Internet at www.dicedads.com. Our Board Game Geek Guild is number 3395, so if you are out there checking out Board Game Geek for the first time, click on over to the Guild section, and uh, find our guild. It's a great place for you to leave comments, ask questions, and just interact with us in general. Or uh, You can find out more information about Salamander Games and our line of products at salamandergames.com. You can also check out our sweet t-shirts and other merch related to Salamander Games and Dice Dads by searching Dice Dads on redbubble.com or by following the link found on either of our websites. Our bumpers and transitional music are selections from the album Burton Slow Down by Adam Main. Check out more of his amazing work on iTunes, wherever fine digital music is sold. Dice Dads is a production of Salamander Games. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts of this show do not reflect the opinions of any sane or normal person and should be disregarded as utter nonsense all the time. <laughs> <laughs>